Bible tonight, just lift up your hand and the ushers will drop off a Bible to you so you can follow along in our study. And we are in Philippians chapter 3 tonight. And uh, if someone could just flip on the rest of the lights there, the back corner of the room is uh, dark, you know. The Bible says, them that sat in darkness shall see great light. And there it is. So we're in Philippians chapter 3, and we'll be picking up in verse 10. See, now, last week we were supposed to get through all of chapter 3, and because we didn't, and I had more time with the text, now we're not going to get through chapter 3 tonight. So, that's okay. His word doesn't return void. We're in chapter 3, and we'll be in verse 10. The Apostle Paul was personally chosen by God to be the man that would herald the message of salvation by grace through faith apart from the works of the law. And he has been known throughout church history as the Apostle of Grace for that reason. Because of the message that he brought forth. It didn't come from him, it came from God, but it was in the word and it was revealed to Paul and he was the apostle of grace, the one that brought forth this message of grace. Now, to those who were and are honest with themselves concerning the true condition of their soul and their spiritual state before God, that message was a source of great rejoicing. Because he was telling them that they could be saved not by their religious devotion and their, uh, you know, offerings and sacrifices and their duties and their consistency to perform the law of God, but that they could be saved by simply putting their faith and their trust in what God provided through the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, as he was the sacrifice for sin upon the cross. And so for those that would be honest about their true spiritual condition, that message was a message of hope, and it was received as the greatest treasure in all of the universe. However, for those that prided themselves on their religious observances and on their strict adherence to sacramental and sacrificial obligations, to them, that message was a severe offense. Because of all the effort that they were putting into earning a a right standing before God. And now a message is being preached that none of that matters a whit. Because you can simply come to God by faith in Jesus Christ and you can have a perfectly right standing with Him as though you were the perfection of God. And to those that were working and sweating and straining religiously, trying to please God through their efforts... To them, that message was offensive. So these people, these religious Jews that took offense to the message of grace, their recourse to this message that Paul was preaching was to follow him from place to place, saying that, yeah, we like what Paul is saying. They they couldn't come out against Paul because it was obvious that God was using him and that there was truth in his message. So they didn't come out against Paul. Instead, they simply said, yes, what Paul is saying is good, but 
if you really want to please God, then you must also be circumcised and keep the law of Moses. Grace is a good start, but now you must add to that the observance of all of the customs of times past. Now, these legalizers, or Judaizers, as they are called, these men that that followed Paul and corrupted his message, these men put their confidence or their assurance of salvation in themselves. Paul calls it, they had confidence in the flesh. They were seeking to save themselves by their religious duties. And they were relying upon that to save them. And these same men that followed Paul all the way throughout Asia Minor, now follow Paul into Europe. And they begin to sow this destructive message amongst the Christians that are there in Philippi. And Paul is addressing this problem. He's addressing these legalizers, these Judaizers, and their influence upon the Christians there in Philippi here in chapter 3 of this book. Now Paul uses himself as an example as he makes his point about these Judaizers and these legalizers. He essentially tells them in the first nine verses that we looked at last week that there is no one on the planet as religious as I was. That's what Paul says. In fact, he challenges them to find someone who was more devout than himself. Go ahead, he says, find someone. If anyone has whereof they might glory in the flesh, he says, I have more. And then he lists his credentials. Circumcised the eighth day, an Israelite from the tribe of Benjamin, a Pharisee of the Pharisees, a Hebrew of the Hebrews. Concerning the persecution of the church, the most zealous that there is. You know, and he goes through and he says, there's nobody that was more strict in their observance of Judaism than I was. And so he lists for them all of the things that he gained through his religious devotion there in the first nine verses. And then he begins to talk about what he gained when he traded all of that in in exchange for a relationship with Jesus Christ. He says it's not grace and works. It's not Jesus and Judaism. It's either Jesus or It's either grace or law. And Paul says, under the law, I was as devout as could be. There was no one who profited more in it than I did. And yet, what things were gained to me, he says, those I counted loss that I might win Christ. And in this passage, he's essentially giving to us two lists. A list of all that he had while he was in the religion of the Jews... And then second of all, all that he received when he traded that in just to have Jesus Christ. And so where we pick up now is in the middle of that list of things that Paul received. He already told us what he gave up. And now he's telling us what he received. And we began last week with the first two. And those were that he was found in Jesus Christ. Both spiritually and practically, he had been a lost soul, but now he was found in Christ spiritually. But not just spiritually, it was also practical, because he never really knew who he was. 
He never really had a grasp on what life was all about and what life was all for until he was found by Christ. Then he found himself. So he was found spiritually. He was found practically. Second of all, he says, I found or gained forgiveness. He says, not having my own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through faith in Jesus Christ, even the, even the righteousness which is through faith in him. So the forgiveness that he gained, that keeping the law could never produce. There weren't enough lambs or bulls in all of the world to justly atone for the sin of just one man, Paul says. But when I came to Christ, all of my sin, to the depths of my soul, past, present, and future, all of it was washed away in the blood of Christ. And I received the forgiveness of sin. So he was found in Christ He received forgiveness in Christ. And where we pick up in verse 10 with number 3, the third thing that he gained in Christ is he found a friend in Christ. And these are all F's. So if you're taking notes, you can write these things down. They should be easy to remember. He received a friend in Christ. Look with me at verse 10. Just the first few words there. He says, that I may know him. That I may know him. When a person comes to Christ, they are not joining a religion. If Christianity is just a a slot on a chart with all of the religions of the world, and, and, and with that name, that title, we just receive a whole bunch of new rules and new regulations, then there really is no purpose in us becoming a Christian or converting from what we are. Because really, if it's just a new set of rules, do's and don'ts, then what makes our do's and don'ts prosper or better than another set? There's really none at all. And Christianity is not a list of do's and don'ts. I remember one of the first things that I read when I, when I first came to the Lord that I'll never forget. It, it was so simple and yet so profound. It just said that the difference between Christianity and every other religion in the world is that religions, no matter which one it is, teach us what we must do to get to God. Whereas Christianity uniquely tells us what God did to reach us. That's the difference. See, and when we come to Christ, we're not joining a religion, but rather we're entering a relationship. We're entering a relationship with Jesus Christ. He promises friendship. In Revelation chapter 3, verse 20, as Jesus sums up the seven letters to the seven churches, he says this. He says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Speaking of the door of your heart and mine. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come in to him and will sup with him and he with me. He's not talking about a relationship, or I mean a religion there. He's not talking about anything contractual or technical. He's saying, if you'll open your heart to me, I will come into your life, and I will be to you the most intimate thing that it's possible to be. Eating with someone was the most intimate act that you could do on a personal level with someone else if you were a Jew. That's why they wouldn't eat with Gentiles. Because symbolically, when you eat with someone, you're becoming one with them. If, if, if the same 
chunk of bread that is nourishing and edifying me is nourishing and edifying you, then in a sense, we're partaking of that together and we're becoming one through this act of eating together. And that's the way the Jews viewed that. And so Jesus uses that as the illustration of what it will be when a person opens their heart to him. That I will sup with you. I will The most intimate interaction that, that we can have, Jesus says, that we will. We, this will take place among us. In John chapter 14, verse 21, Jesus says this. He says, He that hath my commandments and keepeth them, he it is that loveth me. And he that loveth me shall be loved of my Father, and I will love him and will manifest myself to him. The word manifest means to reveal. He says that I'll be revealed to that person. I will come to that person. I will be known by that person. And then one of the most beautiful verses, just a few verses later there in John chapter 15, verse 15, Jesus says this. He says, henceforth, I call you not servants. For a servant knoweth not what his Lord doeth. But I have called you friends. For all things that I have heard of my Father, I have made known unto you. See, religion demands service. A God of religion demands obedience to his commands and the servant-like role. But Jesus says, I have no longer called you servants. I've called you my friend. Because I've made all things known unto you that can be made known unto you. It's intimacy. And see, Paul, who had religion, he had rituals, he had rules, he had a taskmaster. He traded it in, and what he got in return in the Lord was he got a friend. What an incredible privilege that you and I possess that we can say, like Paul here, that we know God. You've all heard the story of when I first came to Christ, you know, those first couple of weeks, and and, and I was at college down in White Plains, and, you know, my friend, Georgia, who was just my friend at the time, she was at college up in Potsdam. And, And I was going through some Bible studies with a group of people, and some of the things that they were teaching were a little bit shady, a little bit off color, you know, not really right, and I didn't know the difference because I was so new. And I remember being on the phone with her and just telling her the things that we were learning in this Bible study. And, and, and she listened for a little while to the things I was saying and sharing. And, and, and there was a little bit of silence. And she, she just said to me in just such a, a meek and, and gentle and real way. She just said, you know, she said, I know God and that's not God. And I, and I literally I went like this. You know God? Yeah, yeah, I, I know God. That's what this is. This is, this is what we've, we've entered into. We've entered into to a relationship with him where we know him. And, and sometimes I think we fail to recognize the privilege that we possess as sons and daughters of God, as friends of Christ, that we know him. I mean, think about if you If someone just came up to you and said, yeah, yeah, I, I know the president. I'm actually really close with the president. We're really good friends. That, would, that relationship would take on a whole new tone, wouldn't it? You'd be like, wait, you know who? You know, now, whether or not you like the president, or that's irrelevant. The fact is, if this person knows the president on it, you're, all of a sudden you have a brand new view of this person who knows someone in such a powerful position. 
Whether you would say it or not, you would realize, you know what, this person is never ever going to lack for a job. This person is never going to be hurting financially. This person is always going to have a place where they can get some help, you know, whatever, because they know someone in an incredible, powerful position. You know, because they're friends with the president. They got it made. Well, what does it mean for you and I when we say that we know God? Like Paul is saying here that I might know him, that he's my friend. Well, imagine with me for one minute that you were the president. Let's just say that you occupy the Oval Office. You live in the White House. You are flying on Air Force One. You're the president. And you have a really close friend who is, for all, uh, you know, lack of better words, a nobody. And, and your nobody friend who you're close to from the past or whatever calls you up and says, Hey, I, I've fallen on hard, hard times. Or I've gotten into a little bit of trouble. Or things just aren't going right and I need a little bit of help. If you're the president, what would you do? Sorry, but, uh, you know, I'm the president now and you're just a little nothing down there and, you know, on the farm and I'm just, I'm too big to, no, no, no. If you were the president, you would say, oh, whatever I can do, I will do for you because you're my friend, because I know you. Well, we're friends of God, right? So what does God do when his friends have need? What happens if a friend of God needs help from God? Interesting. Well, it leads to number four if you're taking notes. And that is that he's not just a friend to us in title. Oh, yeah, we can say, well, he's my friend, but that's about as far as it goes is just the title. No, no. It's not just that he's our friend in title, but he's also our fixer in trouble. Notice what Paul goes on to say. He says that I may know him and... The power of his resurrection. The power of his resurrection. That this isn't an impotent or powerless friendship or relationship. It isn't just something that's in name, that's void of anything else, any substance beyond just what it's called, but that there's power in this intimate fellowship that I have with him. There's something more to it than just a name. Ecclesiastes chapter 4 verses 9 and 10 says this. It says that two are better than one because they have a good reward for their labor. For if they fall, the one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him that is alone when he falleth. For he hath not another to help him up. Two are better than one because if one is by himself, then if he falls, he's in a jam because there's no one there to help him. But if there's two, if there's someone there, the friend will help his brother, his friend. Now, every one of us, everyone in this room has circumstances that are too heavy for us. And if you say, well, not really, just wait. Because you will. If you don't, someone said one time, every Christian is in one of three places. You're either coming out of a trial, going into a trial, or in a trial. You know, you pick, take your pick. You know, every one of us is in one of those. And, and there's heaviness. There's sicknesses that there's no cure for. There's circumstances that there's no solution for. There's troubling issues. Things that we're dealing with, with children, with family members, with neighbors, with coworkers, with employment situations, with our homes. There's pressures that we carry that are too great for us. And if we have to do it alone, we're sunk. And here's what I've discovered, and perhaps you're discovering this along with me, is that God, our friend, 
will sometimes purposely allow us to face circumstances, situations, and trials where there is no human soul on the planet that can help you. God, our friend, will put us in circumstances and situations that would cause us to despair, that are too heavy for us, where there's no help. There's no spouse that can give us the comfort, the counsel, or the help that we need in the situation that we're in. There's no counselor that can give us the word of wisdom that we're waiting to receive so that we'll know what to do and find some direction in the situation. There's no parent that can provide some way out like they did when we were little. Sometimes we wish that they still would. There's no pastor that will have that perfect word, the word fitly spoken like apples of gold and settings of silver. There's, there's just nothing, no one, no resource that can help this situation, this circumstance that I am in. I've been there. I've been in that situation. I'm a pastor. And sometimes my wife will look at me. She'd say, counsel yourself. <laughs> you know, and I would, you know, I would say, okay, what would I say to me? And, and I would say it. And then, well, and what would I say to that? I would say this. And then, and what verse applies? This is the verse. And I would go through the whole thing and I'd be like, it didn't work. You know, I'm still in a jam. This is still a mess. This, there's still despair. There's still no solution. And what do you do when that happens? I think of the woman with the issue of blood. For 12 years, she was hemorrhaging, and she could have been anything else. She could have had a chronic cold. She could have had cancer. She could have had anything. But the issue of blood made anything else better. Because what an issue of blood did in Israel is that it made you an outcast. You couldn't be in contact with other people. You couldn't come into a synagogue or into a fellowship with people because you were considered unclean. And this woman who was ostracized, who carried this weight of reproach, who was looked upon as accursed for 12 years, the Bible says that she spent every dime that she had trying to find a solution, to find a cure. She went to every counselor, every physician, everyone that she could go to in some way to try to fix this thing. And she was completely broke. She was completely tapped. There was nothing left for her to do until she heard of a man was going to be passing through the village that day. And humbled and on bended knee, she made her way over the feet of the crowd that was thronging this prophet, this teacher from Galilee. And she said within herself, if only I can touch the border of his garment, I know something will happen. Something's got to happen. So she came and she touched the border of her garment. And the Bible says as soon as she touched Christ, the issue of blood was quenched. The only person that could help this woman in the circumstance that she faced was Jesus Christ himself. And I have found that God will allow, even ordain, issues, troubles, circumstances, and trials that there is absolutely no human, earthly solution for. And that the only recourse you will have in it is to bring it to Jesus. Well, what happens when you bring it to Jesus? He's an ever-present help in time of need. Romans chapter 8, verse 11 says that the same spirit that raised up Christ from the dead now dwells in us. And if that spirit is powerful enough to raise a dead man to life, then what can't 
he do in our lives? But isn't it amazing? Where's the last place we turn when we're in a time of trouble, a circumstance that's dark? We turn to our friends, we turn to our parents, we turn to our pastors, we turn to our counselors, we turn to perhaps things outside of those that will comfort us temporarily. But how difficult sometimes it is to see through the eyes of faith and to just come to our friend and say, hey, God, my friend, the most powerful being in all of the universe, the one that raised up Christ from the dead, that answered the solution to man's greatest problem. You see the circumstance, the situation that I'm in, and I'm calling on you for help. And the Bible says that his ear is open to the cry of the afflicted. He helps. Paul said that I might know him and the power of his resurrection. And the resurrection power of Christ, as Paul calls it here in the text, is able to do what no one can and what nothing else can. Power can't help. Influence. Money can't help. Knowledge can't help. A degree can't help you. Natural abilities. Good looks. Nothing can help. But nothing shall be impossible to him. You say, okay, okay, wait a minute. I hear what you're saying. And, and I agree. I'm a Christian. I'm here because I believe. I have no problem with anything that you just said. But, but listen. If he's able to help, then why doesn't he just insulate me from the problem to begin with? Why do I even have to go through this tragedy or this circumstance or this trial or this trouble? If he's able to help and nothing is too hard for him, then why couldn't he just keep me from going into this problem, this trial, this circumstance? I'm glad you asked that question. Because it leads us to the fifth thing that Paul gained when he came to Jesus Christ and traded in religion. He tells us right after, he says, that I might know him, the power of his resurrection, and listen and mark it. He says, and the fellowship of his sufferings. The fellowship of his suffering. One of the great ironies of the Christian life is that it isn't in prosperity or even in victory that we experience the presence and the power of the Lord. But rather, it's often in difficulty and perplexity. Amen? I've been going through Romans in my own devotions, just reading through that book again. And, and just this morning as I was going through and reading chapter 3, where Paul is explaining just the simplicity of the gospel, the Lord brought into my mind that Romans was the first book that I read when I, when I got saved. In fact, I, I, now I don't have time to share my testimony, but driving in my car, I just said, God, if you're real, I'll do anything, anything. I don't care what it is. If you're real, I'll do it, but I need to know. And a couple of hours later, I grabbed a Bible, and I just went like this. I played Bible roulette. And it opened up to Romans chapter 1, verse 1. And I thought, okay, this is as good a place as any. I've already done the, I'm going to read this from Genesis, you know, thing. And it just, just, I need to see. So I started reading Romans. And, and you know what happened when I did that? With that kind of a heart, God revealed himself to me. Every word made sense. I could see the, today's world in, in the first century that Paul was writing it in. I could see the grace of Jesus Christ in my life, I could see the contrast between a religious upbringing and a relationship with God through Jesus. 
And it just made sense, and God met me there. And as I was reading this morning, God just reminded me, and not for the sake of this study, because I didn't even put the two things together, but here's what God reminded me, and this is what he spoke to me this morning. That if it hadn't been for the perplexity of my situation at that time of my life, if it hadn't been for the chaos that I was going through emotionally and mentally, if it hadn't been for the difficulty that I was struggling with at that period, at that time, with no solution, then I never would have turned to him for his help. And he never, consequently, would have been revealed to me. Do you understand? It isn't the prosperity. Look at the prosperous man. Look at the man who's just abounding with blessing, who has need of nothing. You know what else he has no need for? God. And therefore, do you know what he doesn't have? God. But the person that goes through deep waters, the person that experiences the depths, as David calls it, the valley of Baca. I don't even know what that means, but I don't want to go there, you know. The valley of the shadow of death, that person cries out to the Lord. And in that time of that place of suffering, they meet with God. In fact, you look through the scriptures, search the scriptures, and what you discover is that every time God reveals himself to a man or to a woman, it's in a time of distress and tribulation in their life. It was the darkest hour of his existence. He was 130 years old, and the word was, offer your son Isaac, the one that you've waited for, the thing that your life has hinged upon, offer your son Isaac to me. And there on that mountain, with the fire, with the knife, with his son bound, in the darkest moment of Abraham's existence, the word of the Lord came to him. Stop. Don't lay a hand on the child. Because you haven't withheld your son from me, I'm also going to make of you. And he establishes the promise again to Abraham that he had been giving him for the past 50 years. And Abraham took the ram that was caught, offered it to the Lord, and then he spoke these words. He said, Jehovah Jireh, because in the mountain of the Lord it shall be seen. The Lord is, the Lord is Jehovah Jireh. The Lord is my provider. And this is what he will do for me. And God was revealed to Abraham on the darkest day of his life. I think of Hagar, this Egyptian bond slave who was cast out and shamefully treated by Sarah, her mistress. And as she's there with child in hand, waiting for the child just to die because there's no provision, there's no water, it says that God met her there, opened her eyes and showed her a well of provision for her son. And she called on the name of the Lord, El Roy. And she named the well Beer Lahayroy, which meant the God who sees and hears me. It was in the time of her deepest trouble that God was revealed who he is, his essence, his nature, his reality, his power, in the middle of her trial. He was there up on the mountain. When his arms were raised, the army would win victoriously. But when his arms got tired and began to fall, the army of Israel began to give place to their enemies. They began to be defeated. And so his arms would be lifted again in a moment of strength and Israel would prevail. But then Moses' arms would get heavy and the enemies, Amalek, would prevail. And so Joshua and Caleb, they come alongside, or Aaron and her, whoever it was, doesn't matter. They they lift up Moses' arms. 
And, 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 and down in the valley, the people are fighting. And they turn up and they look up on the hill. And what do they see? They see three men up on a hill. And the one in the middle has his arms spread out. And it was a source of strength for them in the midst of the battle to see the man in the middle with his arms outstretched. A perfect picture of what Christ would do upon the cross. And Israel was victorious that day. And, and after the whole thing was over, Moses, realizing the depth of the trial, the depth of the battle that they had just faced, he said, Jehovah Nisi, the Lord is my banner. The Lord is the one who fights for me. And God was revealed to them that day in the middle of the greatest battle that they would ever face, something that their whole survival hinged upon. I think of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who were bound with ropes thrown into a furnace that was heated seven times hotter than it had ever been heated before. And Nebuchadnezzar looked inside and he said, how many people did we throw in the fire? And they said, three. And he said, well, then why do I see four? And the fourth looks like the Son of Man. And they didn't even want to come out. He said, get him out of there. And they said, no, we'll stay in. And they said, get him out of there. Get him out. And finally, he has to call them out. And it says that not only didn't they were their clothes not burned, but they didn't have the smell of smoke on them. And the, the ropes that bound them were loosed and they were free. Where did they meet the one who's like unto the Son of Man? In the furnace. In the fire. In the tragedy. It's irony it's something that we don't look forward to. We don't necessarily like it, but it's the fact of the matter is that he is revealed when we go through deep water. There's fellowship with him in our suffering. and He's the one that paved the example. It's where he's revealed. Now, we never ask for it. I, I don't do this. I don't say, Lord, give me trials today so that I might know you more. I don't think Paul said, Lord, please, I want to suffer. Please, can I get the whip again? Because that was good last time. No, no, no. None of us ask for it. We don't ask for it. But, but listen, I will tell you this. that You can ask anyone here that's been through deep waters if they would trade that experience for anything. And I can almost tell you the consensus would be not for anything. Because it's in those times, it's in those seasons, it's in those things that we come into an intimate, personal, real, experiential knowledge of his person. And that is priceless. It's the fellowship of his sufferings. C.S. Lewis said that God whispers to us in our pleasures and he shouts to us in our pain. And he never gives us more than what we can handle. It's always perfect according to what we need. Now, with the sufferings of this life, and with the help that we receive from the Lord, and with the friendship that He provides for us, something begins to happen inside of us. There's a deep internal change that begins to happen inside the life of a person who knows Jesus Christ personally. And it's number six if you're taking notes, and that is a fashioning. A transforming, a change begins to happen. Notice what he says there. The fellowship of his sufferings, verse 10, being made conformable unto his death, if by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead. That I might be made conformable or fashionable or changed into the image of his death. What does this mean? Listen. 
When Jesus died, when he hung on the cross, the death that Paul is speaking of here, that he's being conformed into the image of, not only was Jesus paying the price and the penalty for our sins, we understand that. That's, that's our whole faith. The whole reason we're here is because of Jesus paying the penalty and the price for our sins. But that's not all he was doing on the cross. He was also making a statement. There was a clear statement that was being made by Christ to the whole entire world as he hung there on the cross and he said, it is finished, and he gave up the ghost. Well, what was that message? What was he saying? How many here have read the book of Revelation by show of hands? I should should do that the way. How many people have never read the book of Revelation? You don't even know what's in it. You don't know what I'm talking about. Okay. In the book of Revelation, chapters 2 and 3, there are seven letters that were written by Jesus himself addressed to seven churches. Now, in each one of those letters to the seven churches, he talks about their strengths, he talks about their weaknesses, and then he gives them some advice in every one of those letters. Now, in all seven of them, without exception, every single church, he finishes the letter this way. He says, To him that overcomes, I will give to eat of the tree of life. I saw it go up on the thing. I didn't know I had that one. I guess I do. Okay. He says, to him that overcomes, I will give to eat, or I will make a a pillar in the temple of my God, or I will give a white stone. It's different to each one, but he says it to all of them. He says, to him that overcomes. Then, at the end of the seven letters, he addresses all of them this way. He says this, Revelation 3, 21 and 22. He says this. To him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne, listen, even as I also overcame and am set down with my father in his throne. Him that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. So what does Paul mean when he talks about being made conformable into his death? Because Paul isn't dying for his own sins. He's not purchasing someone else's salvation. So what does this mean when he says being made conformable into his death? Listen, as we know him, as we are helped by him, and as we fellowship in sufferings with him, something begins to happen inside of us. Our affinity and our affections for the things of this world slowly begins to die. And they are translated from being for ourselves and of this world to being towards him and for his kingdom. We begin to separate from this world and we begin to become citizens in the kingdom of Christ and of God. This world becomes less and less and we die to it and we grow more and more in love with him and we look forward to that time that we will be with him. That change begins to take place within us. We become separated from this world and we begin to realize, listen, life is not here. There is nothing on this planet for me. This world holds nothing. There's nothing abiding like the psalmist said, nothing that can satisfy And we begin to look towards the next. We detach from the earth. And what happens is that we become overcomers. He says in verse 11, If by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead. That is the thing that I'm longing for. The thing that I'm looking towards is his kingdom that's coming. Eternity. Do you know, and I'll tell you a secret. Do you like secrets? The greatest need 
and longing that the human heart has is for eternity. Now, that might not be true of you right now. You might say, well, my greatest need, my greatest longing is to be through this situation that I'm in. Or to be finished with this circumstance that I don't like. Or to be graduated from this program that I wish was cursed, you know, or or something. And, And you might say, that's my greatest need right now. Oh, okay, I'll give you that. But imagine with me for just one second that every single one of us right here, or or you could just personalize it and say you. Imagine with me for a moment that every ideal in your life was true right now. In other words, if you could write your own ticket, you could say, this is my bank account. This is where I live. This is what I drive. This is what I do with my time. This is, these are all the circumstances. This is who my family is. This is how I was brought up and where. And you could write it. You could basically whatever you want. And then, you know, the witch lady would come out of the pumpkin thing and say, bibbidi-bobbidi-boo, and it's done, you know. Now, in your life, what would happen is that there would be an immediate elation. You would rejoice and and you would feel the weight of every burden just fall off of you. And and, and the freedom that you would experience as you just relished in that moment of, I'm free. Everything is perfect. It's heaven. And then do you know what would happen? Despair. Despair would come over you. Maybe not that moment or that day, but within a month or two, despair would come upon you. Do you know why? Because you know that as long as you're on earth, ideals are eventually going to fade into new trials, troubles, and bad circumstances. Health and bodily perfection is going to turn into old age and dilapidation. It's not going to last. And so all of a sudden, you have everything that you could hope for, everything that you could want, but what you don't have is eternity. And the new longing that you would have immediately is, how do I make this last? And you can't. You can't. Because there's nothing lasting here. It doesn't last. And so what Jesus did is he went right to the core and he purchased for us eternal life. And what he's preparing on the other side of that is the perfect set of ideals that won't last for our stupid 70 years that we get on this dark and vile planet. But he's given us the ideals that will last for eternity where the burden will fall off and we'll see him at that crystal throne and we'll praise him who redeemed us out of every tribe, tongue, and nation and purchased us unto God and has made us kings and priests by his grace when we were the least, when we could never deserve it, in a way that we could never earn it freely. Eternity. And when a person knows Christ and experiences the grace that he gives in the trials of this life, slowly, that change takes place. Lord, I don't care about this world. I don't care if the ideals never come. I don't care if I never graduate. I don't care if my kids ever stop acting the way they're acting. Yeah, we do care about that. But but you get my point. Is that it's not here. It's there. It ain't heaven till heaven, right? Paul's perspective Bring on the resurrection. Number seven, the last thing that Paul says is that he was given a new focus. A new focus. As a Jew, Paul's practice was religious duties, sacraments, 
observances, degrees, titles, attainments, and advancement in his religion, in his career, in what he was doing. That's what he gave his time to as a Jew. That's what his life was. It's what he lived for. Well, what about now? He says he traded all that in. He counted it as loss. So now that he's saved and he doesn't have to make sacrifices and attain sacraments and degrees and advancements and all the rest, what does he do now? What does Paul do with his life? What are his goals? What are his outlooks? What are the things that he is ambitious towards now that he is a Christian? What is his focus, essentially? Well, he tells us in verse 12, four quick things as we close. And yes, we are about halfway through this study. No, I'm just kidding. He says, not as though I had already attained. Either we're already perfect. In other words, he's saying, listen, I don't want you to think, Philippian church, I don't want you to think that I have attained to something. Yes, God is using my life. Yes, I'm in the ministry. Yes, I'm called with a message. But I don't want you to think for one moment that I have attained unto the status of perfection, where I can say, I have arrived, and you should all just wish you could be as spiritual as I am. Paul says, no, 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 don't think that. That's not the case. He says, but this is what I do. He says, I don't count myself to have attained or be perfect, but, he says, I follow after. The first thing that Paul does with his energy, his focus in his life as a Christian, is that it is his ambition to grow. I follow after. After The word follow after there in verse 12, the Greek word means to run after and to pursue with hostility. That means I don't consider that I've already, I'm, I'm finished, that God's done, that he's, his work in me is complete. He says, I don't figure it that way, but he says, this I want, I want to grow. I want to pursue the plan and the calling and the person that God has called me to be. That's what I want to be, and I'm going to do it with hostility. I want to grow. There is a dangerous thing that can happen to those of us that have been saved for a little while. I don't know if you've ever felt this or experienced it, but but after you've been saved for a little while, you can almost begin to succumb to the temptation to just put it on autopilot a little bit. You ever done that? You know what? I've grown. I'm in the Word. I've got a consistent devotional life. Things are going right. There's balance. You know, I'm, my, my job and my recreation and my family and my marriage and, and all of everything is humming right now. And so I'm just going to kind of kick it onto autopilot in the spiritual thing and coast for a while. I'm just going to relax. I'm just going to maintain this level of spirituality. That's a very dangerous place for a Christian to find themselves. Because the fact is that it doesn't work like that. The Christian life, the Bible says that our God is an all-consuming fire. Have you ever seen a fire just put it on autopilot? A fire doesn't put it on autopilot. A fire is doing one of two things. It is either growing or it is dying. It is never stagnant. Only for one brief moment when it makes the transition between growing and dying is it stagnant. But there is no stagnancy in an all-consuming fire. And the Bible says that he is an all-consuming fire. And so what that translates into in your life and mine is that you and I, we are either growing or shrinking. We are either growing closer to the Lord, we're becoming more intimate with Him, we're knowing Him in a deeper and more real way, we're taking on new challenges, we're getting victory over sin in our lives in new and lasting ways, deeper things, jealousies and bitterness in the unseen realms of our heart, or we're losing ground spiritually. And by very, very, ever so slight degrees, we're becoming a little bit more carnal. We're allowing just a little bit more entertainment and media into our lives, a little bit more 
stimulation that isn't of the Spirit of God and in some way feeding on something worldly. And you're either growing or you're shrinking. I love what the writer of Hebrews says. It's Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1. He says, therefore, and it's not going to come up, but you can look it up later. He says, therefore, we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest at any time we begin to drift. And that's the dangerous thing that can happen to a Christian who puts it on autopilot is that you begin to drift. And you know what the problem with drifting is? Is you don't know what's happening. You ever been at the ocean and you're playing out in the surf and you had a rainbow umbrella where your, you know, beach blanket was and you're just out, you're body surfing, you're playing in the surf and whatever. And what happens an hour later? You're like, I didn't move, but my uh, rainbow umbrella is gone, you know. Because guess what? There's currents, there's tides, and you drifted, and you didn't even realize it. And that's what happens to a Christian. And Paul said, not me. I want to grow. And you and I, Christian, it's the same thing. We are either growing closer to the Lord, or we are growing stagnant and cooler in the things of Christ. And Paul says, I follow after. It is my goal, my ambition. Number two, he says, I embrace. Look again at verse 12. He says, I follow after, if that... I may apprehend that for which also I am apprehended of Christ Jesus. That word apprehend, if you have a new King James, it uses the words lay hold or embrace more accurately. And you might read it this way. He says, if that I may embrace that for which I have been embraced by Christ. And here's what it means when Paul says that he wants to embrace It means to see the circumstances of life, as crazy as they might be, as though they are directly from him and as part of his perfect plan for your life, to embrace them. See, many people, and I I include myself in this many people because I'm one of these people, we wear a circumstance bubble or we have a circumstance filter, right? And, And what we do is we spend a whole bunch of energy trying to avoid bad circumstances do you do that i know i do (laughs) you know how can i avoid this happening to me you know and we kind of build this circumstance bubble around us i don't want that to happen i don't want this to happen that would be terrible if this happened i don't want to go through it paul didn't live that way his mindset was look i belong to the lord and therefore whatever god wants to allow to happen in my life bring it that's what paul's mentality was bring it sickness bring it in in fact Paul was in prison while he wrote this epistle. A circumstance that I don't think any of us would want, we go to great lengths to avoid it. That's why we pay taxes. It's the only reason. You know. I'm not saying you shouldn't pay your taxes. Pay, pay your taxes. It's the law. God's law. Man's law is God's law. In that respect, uh, that's just for the government if they're listening, you know. But. Paul's mentality was, listen, if... If what God is allowing in my life is going to cause growth, progress, depth, and intimacy and add to the calling he has for my life, then bring it on. I want to embrace that for which he has also laid hold of me. Whatever he's allowing to come into my life, he's allowing it so that I might become the person that he is making me to be so that I might bear the most fruit for him. And he says, therefore, I lay hold of it. I embrace it. I welcome it because I know it's good for me. The third thing he does there in verse 13, he, he forgets the past. He says, brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended. But he says, this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind. 
Paul kept a conscious mentality to always be forgetting the past. That's deep, isn't it? How many of you drive your car by looking in the rearview mirror? Anybody? Anybody drive looking in the rearview mirror? Dangerous. I don't recommend doing that, you know. But yet there's many Christians that that's the way they live their life. They live their life by constantly looking into the past. What happened yesterday or this road is because of what I did back there and, and, and all the looking at all of these different things. Well, well, wait a minute. What does Paul mean when he says that he doesn't look in the past, in the rearview mirror, if you would? Well, he doesn't pay attention to past sins. He looked at the sins of the past as though they were under the blood. He didn't find regret in the past decisions that he had made. His imprisonment was a decision that he made. The Spirit said, don't go to Jerusalem. What did he do? He went. Agabus bound himself with Paul's belt, and he said, the man who owns this belt is going to be bound if he goes to Jerusalem. Paul said, I'm going to Jerusalem. He made a decision, ended up in prison, spent the greater part of the rest of his life in prison because of a decision he made. He says, I don't regret it because I don't look at the past. I don't weigh my past decisions against my present reality and have regret upon my life. I don't live that way, Paul says. He didn't look at past victories. It leads to pride. It leads to stagnancy in the Christian life if we live in the past victories that we've had. And he didn't look at his past failures. He didn't say, he didn't listen when people said, oh, we've tried to plant a church there, Paul. It doesn't work. You can't plant a church in that city. It's too dark. He said, no, 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 that's the past. I forget the things which are behind you. You failed, or it failed last time, but that doesn't mean it's going to fail this time. He didn't look at the past. Now, there's nothing wrong with learning from the past, but don't live in the past. Paul said, I forget it. And then finally, the fourth thing that he made it his ambition to do was to press on. The second half of verse 13 there, he says, forgetting the things which are behind and reaching forth unto those things which are before I press towards the mark of the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. That word press on that's used there in the Greek, it's in the present tense, which means literally, he says, I am pressing on. And it speaks of a moment. Do you know what moment it is? It speaks of right now. Did you know that there is only one moment where eternity touches time. Do you know when it is? Right now. From the moment you were born until the moment you die, there is only one split second. Think about it. Your whole life. How old are you? How old will you be? In your whole life, from the moment you're born until the moment you die, there is one split second in that whole span of time that you have control over. You know when it is? Right now. That's it. You can't control any other part of it. You can only control right now. Those that study thought, and I don't know how you study thought, but apparently there are people that study thought. And do you know what their conclusions are? Is that 99% of all human thought is either about things that are past or about things that have not yet come, the past or the future. 99% of all thought is either about the past or the future. That leaves 1% for what? The moment that we can actually do something, right? Right now. Right now we have power to grow. 
We have power to fight the good fight of faith. We have power to get victory over sin in our life and defeat temptation right now. So you don't have power next week or next month or when you get home tonight or that's you have right now. That's all you ever have. And the course of your life and the success of it and the impact that it has is going to hang upon what you did with right now. Not the past defeats or victories or the future plans or ambitions, but what are you doing now? Paul says, I am pressing on. That is my goal. That is my, my mind. Well, we have to stop. Good thing, because we're about where we were going to anyways. So let's stand and pray together, shall we? Father, we just thank you for your word tonight. Lord, as the days get closer to your return and the times become more confusing and more perilous, we find ourselves becoming more and more stressed, more and more stretched, more and more pulled. We find the temptations are greater. We find that the intensity of evil rising up around us is greater, it's more. And we thank you for this reminder, Lord, that you are in control of all things that you've called us with a holy and personal calling, that you know us each by name, that there's not a moment that passes, that you're not fully aware of where we are, of what our needs are. We thank you, Lord, that you call us your friends. And I just pray right now for every person that's here tonight, Lord, that you would meet with them, that you would meet with them in such a real and personal way that you would empower them by your Holy Spirit and your holy power to live lives of joy, even in the midst of chaos. That you would lift us above the darkness of this age and that our hearts would detach from the things of this life that we might live completely for you. So lay hold of us tonight, Lord, we pray. Give us the power and the strength to embrace the things that you're doing and allowing in our lives, trusting and believing that you're doing them for your perfect, sovereign will. Give us that childlike trust and faith. Please, Lord. We commit our hearts. Please, make the the adjustments, make the changes. In Jesus' name.